Dear Mr. or Mrs. President, I have some concerns. There are a lot of bad people in the world. And the economy could use some work. And what are you going to do to protect my freedoms? I hope you have some strong leadership. Sincerely, a concerned voter. Good morning. Welcome to Life Church. I'm Aaron Cole, the senior pastor. It's great to see you today. Can we welcome our Appleton campus, our online campus, Germantown campus? Wherever you are joining us from today, we're so delighted that you're with us. And those of you at the Appleton campus, you need to give your campus pastor, Jeff Lister, a hard time. He turned 30 on, uh, yeah, this past week. And uh, I don't think he turned 30, but he looks 30. So you just give him a hard time for me and uh, all that kind of stuff. We love Jeff and Abby and the great job they're doing there in Appleton. And uh, it's, just a, it's, a, it's just a great weekend. And we're delighted again to, uh, to kind of be in the middle of this series. So let's get into religion and politics today. The two things everybody says you shouldn't mix. We're just going to get right in the middle of it today. That's all right with you. If you have your Bibles, if you turn me to Nehemiah chapter 5. Nehemiah chapter 5. Now, if you need to look that up in the contents, table of contents, totally fine uh, in the front of your Bible, but Nehemiah chapter 5. Uh, today, we're talking about the fact that character counts. And I, I know in light of this presidential election, that may be kind of a funny statement, um, but we're going to get right in the middle of it. That's all right. Because character counts. And again, I'm just going to tell you what God's Word says. I'm going to tell you what God is saying. And, and, and I think that you then, as you're praying and processing uh, as, um, as what's happening and unfolding within the next couple of weeks within this country, uh, you will uh, be able to, to, to make an informed decision uh, as to what you're supposed to do. See, there's symbols of authority all around us. And, uh, but when we obey those, uh, those, those symbols of authority because of what they stand for, not necessarily because of the person. Let me give you a prime example. If you're out driving on the freeway and all of a sudden you are speeding, which I'm sure nobody does, myself included, and, um, and all of a sudden you see a state trooper, you will slow down. Not because you know the person that's in that squad car, but because of the fact that the power that they have vested into them by the state of Wisconsin to be able to pull you over, uh, make you even further delayed in your travel, and to write you a ticket. And as soon as you slow down and they don't write you a ticket and you get by them, then you do what every person typically does and you speed back up. I tell my wife, I'm just trying to keep up with traffic. And she says, no, you're weaving through traffic. <laughs> See, these people, they have power over us, but they don't have influence over us. There's a difference. People that influence us rarely carry symbols of authority. Now, John Maxwell is famous for saying that leadership in its purest form is influence. And, and I completely agree with that, that leadership is influence. You see, we find ourselves drawn to people with influence Partially because we want to be like them and we admire them, but because the way they live their life and what they do demands a certain amount of respect. Not because of their position, but because of what they are, not necessarily who they are. And every great leader has authority that rests upon accomplishment, not upon position. Every great leader has an inner conviction, a, a willingness to bring their lives into alignment with those convictions. And, and what that culminates is into uh, a, two words that we don't talk a whole lot about that we're going to talk about today because character counts is a word, is a phrase or two words called moral authority. 
Moral authority. Moral authority positions us to influence people at their deepest levels. Moral authority allows us to speak to people's hearts, to speak to people's minds, and their consciousness. It allows us to be able to have influence. See, our next president, whoever he or she will be, will sit in a seat of authority. He or she will wield incredible power. We want him or her to have moral authority. We want him or her to be a leader worth following, not because of their position, but because of their consistency between the values that they espoused and the values that they live out. And Nehemiah speaks to this issue of moral authority. Again, this is not something that's talked a whole lot about. Quite frankly, within political circles, it's quite frankly disregarded because my private life shouldn't have effect on my public life. Not according to Scripture. According to Scripture, you cannot dichotomize your life. According to Scripture, you have to be a person that needs to be the same wherever you are. Now again, let me say this as I get into this subject of moral authority and we get into Nehemiah chapter 5. I'm not prescribing perfection today because none of us are perfect. There's only one. His name is Jesus, and he died for our sins. Thank God for that. I believe that all of us live by grace, that not of ourselves, that, that the salvation that we have in God is through Christ Jesus, and it's not by my actions or by my good works. But I do believe that there are standards and I do believe there are account, that there is accountability. And I do believe that this is how we work as humans. Even if we prescribe or, uh, to, to, the, to the ideology of public and private, when we see someone who lives one way in private and they're another way in public, it does something to us. It lowers how we view them, even if we never verbally say so. Even if we allow them to dichotomize their life between private and public, there's a certain lowering. Why? Because the reality is, is that they don't live what they say. Nobody in any group, in any time, at any place has ever liked hypocritical behavior. Of one person to espouse one thing and to live another thing. This is what moral authority is all about. Now, Nehemiah, just give you a little background to Nehemiah. Nehemiah is an extraordinary leader. Matter of fact, it's one of my favorite books on leadership, on how to, how to articulate a vision and then how to follow through with that vision. We find that he, his heart is broken over uh, the condition of his nation, of Israel. See, he is an Israelite. He is from the city of Jerusalem. He gets word that his hometown of Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel, is been, is the walls are broken down and the gates are no more. Now, in, the, in this particular area of time, you have to understand that the walls being fortified and being strong uh, symbolize the power of the nation. If the walls are broken down, if the walls are breached, it meant that they were a people that had been overtaken, that they were people that were weak, that they were people that were no longer had the strength of what they once had had. They were kind of a, uh, you know, they were kind of a, a, a thought of another day, another era. Because it was the walls of the city and the gates of the city that would fortify the city. So when he hears this, it's a physical representation of a reality that's happening. Now, he's living in Persia at this point in time. He's serving under King Anaxerxes. This is around 444 B.C. So Anaxerxes was the Persian king. If you remember last week, if you were here, if you weren't, you can look at this online. But, but Anaxerxes, the Persian king, was the one who would have followed after Darius who, who would have followed after Belshazzar, who would have followed after Nebuchadnezzar. So when the Medes and the Persians invade Babylon and overtake Nebuchadnezzar and then ultimately his son Belshazzar that we talked about last week, it was 
these kings and Xerxes that would have been overseeing the nation of Israel at this point in time. So, Nehemiah is much like Daniel. He's at the top of his game. Nehemiah is, is, a, is a top level official. He's what, what the, the Old Testament calls a cupbearer or a wine taster. Now, don't think he's a wine connoisseur that he writes a little article every week and tells you where his best wines are in his favorite vineyards. No, no, no. The wine tester or the, or the cupbearer was the confidant to the king. They were, they was the king's chief of staff, a prime minister, if you would. It would have been the person that the king would have brought in on every single issue to say, hey, is this okay? And literally, physically, he would taste of the king's wine and taste of the king's food to make sure there was nothing there that would poison the king. But the king had to trust him. Him. It's interesting that Anaxerxes doesn't have a Persian cupbearer, but rather this Israelite. Because of his extreme character and integrity, because of his moral authority. Nehemiah goes and asks the king for permission to return to his country, to Jerusalem, and to rebuild the walls around the city of Jerusalem. And Anaxerxes permits him to do so, and he finances it. This is very interesting, because remember, they're, the Persians and Xerxes, they are the occupying government. So they're actually allowing and paying for the rebuilding, for the refortification of the city of Jerusalem, a city in which they have occupied, a city in which they are, basically, the Israelites are their slaves, in essence. The Jews are living in this chaotic city that's been destroyed for over 70 years, and Nehemiah goes back to his hometown, he goes back to Jerusalem and he casts his compelling vision and, and the reconstruction begins. But it doesn't do so without resistance. The surrounding regions see a strong Israel as a threat. So the geopolitical politics are coming into play. Those within Jerusalem, the wealthy merchants and the moneylenders, don't like this either. You know why? Because they've taken advantage of the poverty and the misfortune of their own people. Which the Old Testament law forbade. You could not even charge interest against to your brother, according to the Levitical law. But what they've done is they've taken advantage, and they've given them exorbitant uh, uh, percentage uh, loans. They've actually made them debtors to one another, and they're actually selling their own people as slaves to other nations. They're forcing them to borrow against their children, their wives, their farms, um, and, just, and, and then they're selling them back the grain that they're actually producing because they own the, they're like sharecroppers. When the sharecroppers go to sell the grain, they're actually turning around and making a profit again on it. It's just horrific times of just basically just taking horrible disadvantage of, of these people in their situation. Nehemiah goes back and he confronts this unfair and illegal practice, trade practices of the rich. Look at it, Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 6. And when I heard their outcry... And these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and, and then accused the nobles and the officials. And I told them, you are charging your own people interest? So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have brought back our fellow Jews who were also sold into, to the Gentiles. Now, you who are selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So Nehemiah, I just want to give you a parenthetical thought here, has used his own funds to buy back certain Jews and freed them to work on the wall. This is his own money personally. Again, Nehemiah was a powerful individual. Look at verse 9. So I continued, what are you doing? What you're doing is not right. Shouldn't, shouldn't you walk in the fear of God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? 
And I and my brothers and men are also lending the people money and grain, but, they, but, but let us start charging the interest. Give back to them immediately their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves, the houses, their homes, and also the interest which you're charging them. 1% of the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. Look at verse 12. This is their response. These are all the power brokers in Jerusalem. We will give it back, they said, and then we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priest and made the nobles and the officials take an oath to do what they had promised. Verse 13, I shook out the folds of my robe and said, in this way may God shake out their houses and possessions of anyone who does not keep this promise. So much, so such Excuse me, so may such a person be shaken out and emptied. And at the whole assembly, they all said amen and praise the Lord, and the people did as they promised. Now, we read that and we go, wow, that's a great little Bible story. Can we have like a flannel graph to go along? And maybe afterwards we'll have like some craft time, like a VBS, like a vacation Bible school lesson. This is actual recorded history of what happened in that period of time. This is real money. See, this is the thing. Money talks, everything else walks. You heard that phrase? You probably heard it said a little bit differently than that, but, but, but you, get the, you get the gist of it. And sometimes we think in our minds, well, you know, like in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, in the Bible days, it wasn't quite like it is today, just cold, hard cash. Right? $100 bills, y'all. You know what I'm talking about? Like, it's like that. No? You people don't live with money? Yeah. Everybody gets real quiet when you start talking about money. Because it gets real when you start talking about money. I mean, you, you're talking turkey till you start putting money on the table, and then now, now, we're, now we're in a deal. Now there's a contractual agreement. Now we're going to sign, and we get lawyers involved, and attorney, attorneys involved, and we get people making sure the contracts are correct, and everything else until we start putting money down on the table, till we put the earnest money down, till we, till we put this down. It's just we're just kind of talking. The reality is, is here's what's happening. Nehemiah, who is a very powerful individual, comes back to his hometown and sees all the disrepair and brings every single power broker in the city together. How do you do that? Because you got power. If you called a, a meeting tomorrow with all the power brokers in the state of Wisconsin, who's going to show up? It all depends on how powerful you are. It all depends on how many friends you have. It doesn't matter where the meeting's at. If you've got enough power, if you've got enough bank, if you've got enough, they will show up because they want to hear what you have to say because there's a connection. If you don't, they disregard you and they, and, and they, they don't show up. These people, not only do they show up, but they listen to the rebuke of a man who doesn't even live in their city anymore. Because one thing he's doing, he's going back to the law, going back to the word of God and saying, this is what God's word says. Another thing is he's living it out and he's paying for it out of his own pocket. The other thing is, is that they know he's a powerful individual and they don't want the king to come and deal with them. It's not altruistic. Because they've not been fearing God because they've not been keeping his word. But it took a man, it took a person to come back and do that. Could you imagine if the next president of the United States went to Wall Street, to the heads of banks, to the oil companies, to the health care providers, and anybody else who has been taking unfair advantage of people and their situation and their plight and said, okay, for the sake of this country, we're going to do things differently, and they all said, amen, praise the Lord? It would be not on the ticker tape of, of every news station, but it would be the headline. It would literally be a, a, a news breaking. Everybody would stop everything for somebody to have that level of power. Have you ever seen in our day, in our time, someone that has that level of power to look at powerful people and to call them on their stuff and to ask them to repent and not only to repent, but to pay back what they've taken? No, we don't do that. 
Because nobody has the moral authority to stand with that with the amount of power and integrity combined together to be able to ask people to do that. That's the kind of person we'd follow. That's the kind of person that we want. But we don't produce that in our country. Well, because private isn't public and public isn't private and it's just complicated. You don't think it wasn't complicated in 440 B.C.? Yeah. There were no human rights laws with Anaxerxes. Read Western civilization. These were powerful, crude individuals. They weren't God-fearing people. But Nehemiah walks in to the power brokers of the city and turns it. Nehemiah had traction with the wealthy because he had moral authority. There was a public alignment between what he was doing personally and what he was asking them to do. He was not asking them to do something he personally was not doing. And in leadership, you cannot lead people where you've not been, and you cannot give people what you don't have. You will reproduce in the lives of followers exactly what you are. That's how it is. That's how it works. Look on down to verse 14 of Nehemiah chapter 5. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Anaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, until the 32nd year, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. Now, King Anaxerxes uh, would have given uh, and commissioned that, that there was food that was given to every governor of, over every region. But Nehemiah doesn't do this. You know why? Because he would have had to collect tax on the people in order to pay for this. Anaxerxes was not benevolent. He was allowing the governor to tax the people, and then from the taxes of the people, then Nehemiah would receive. That's not, and Nehemiah said, they're already oppressed there's already oppression going on. There's already issues going on. I refuse to do this any further, so I won't eat of that. Pretty incredible integrity. Look at verse 15. But earlier, the governors preceding me, Nehemiah, said, placed a heavy burden on the people, took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded over the people. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Verse 16. Instead, I devoted myself to work on this wall. All of the men were assembled there for work, and we did not acquire any land. So he didn't go in and just annex land in for, for the government. See, property ownership was a sign of power. He didn't go there. He didn't enrich himself either at the expense of the people. He did what he said he came to do, which was build the wall, which was to bring back Jerusalem to the powerhouse that it once had been. Look at verse 17. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from surrounding nations. Just look at that, 150. You're feeding 150 people? Look what he fed them each day. One ox, six choice sheep, poultry were prepared for me. That's a lot of food. That's a, you, you think you got three teenage boys in the house? Ain't you out of the house home? That's a lot of food. And he's paying for this out of his own pocket. Every 10 days, an abundant supply of wine and all kinds. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were heavy on these people. Remember me with favor, my God, for I have done all uh, for all I have done for these people. He only looked to God to be a source. That's interesting. Can I just tell you great leaders, whether they're in the White House or the church house, they always look to God to be their source, not to the people. Nehemiah's, everyone knew Nehemiah's lifestyle was in sync with his words. He spoke with, with, with authority, not as a governor, but with moral authority because of the choices he had made. They saw all of this. They saw the comparison contrast to how he'd been to, with previous leaders. He'd been walking the talk, and it cost him. It cost him personally. 
Because leadership does that. Leadership will cost you personally. Financially, it will cost you of your talent. It will take years of your life. People that aspire to be a leader, there's a high cost to pay. His lifestyle actually shamed them because of the moral authority in which he lived with. See, the credibility that you have is earned by walking your talk. The credibility that you have, the only currency that you cannot buy, is achieved, is earned by walking your talk with what you say with your mouth and how you live in your life. Again, I'm not talking about perfection, but I'm talking about someone who has a congruency between how what they say and how they live. The greater the alignment, the greater the congruency between what you say and how you live equals the greater amount of moral authority that you have in your life. The bigger the discrepancy between what you say and how you live, it diminishes the moral authority that you have in your life. The New Testament uses the word or the phrase beyond reproach. Paul says all things may be permissible, but not all things are beneficial. There are things in my life that I choose not to do and involve myself in, not because it's sin, but because it's not beneficial to leadership. Staff members that come on staff at Life Church, there are certain expectations. Board members, there are certain expectations, not because it's right or wrong, but because it's not beneficial. It puts us on a slippery slope. It puts us in a position that we just, a vulnerability that we just don't need to be in. It, it puts us in a place where we might have to spend currency, leadership change, in order to keep up with certain things that just are not helpful. See, moral authority determines your influence with other people. Your position determines your ability to exercise authority over people. You obey a boss or a teacher or a parent or the government out of obligation, not necessarily out of respect or allegiance. But moral authority determines the ability to exert influence over people. It's not just enough to have authority. It's you have to have influence. Every time I have a new staff member come on staff, I just say, hey, man, you're kind of at zero right now. Just think of it like a bank account. You're at zero. Every time you do positive things you put change into that bank account, and it grows. Every time you serve people, you put change in that bank account. Every time you do that, you're putting change in that emotional leadership bank account. And every time you make a mistake, you take it out. And typically, every good action, you put one coin in. And every bad action, you take two out. It's not fair. It's just life. Get, get used to it. And so what you want to do is you want to put change in to that account so that over time you have an account, not that you amass all this leadership currency, but so you're able to spend it at the right time so that people trust you. See, I'm able to, after 14 years of standing here in front of you, come and preach. Why? Because I've earned a certain right to be heard in your life. It doesn't mean that you always agree with me. That's okay. It doesn't mean that you, don't ha that you have to be here every week. You, you choose. You got up today. And decided this is where you're going to go to church. Maybe this is your last Sunday. Maybe it's your first. Hello, goodbye. Whatever, right? I mean, it happens. My point to you is that you chose. But my ability to stand here starts at a base level of being, of being given the title of senior pastor. But after 14 years, if that's all I have, I've not done my job. No, my job is to serve. My job is to live a life. My job is not to be perfect. My job is to own my own mistakes, but my job is to lead. And as I lead and, and, and as I serve well, then I'm able to exert influence, which is more powerful than authority. 
Because with influence, we allow ourselves to be influenced by people we respect. And can I just help you, those of you that are trying to navigate leadership, people that respect you to be a respected leader means that you will not always be a liked leader. And sometimes not even a loved leader. You lost that love and feeling. It's gone, gone, gone. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Leadership. It's lonely. Because you're having to make decisions that everybody doesn't understand. See, there's two types of in leadership. You deal with confidentiality and with, and, with, and with secrecy. Secrecy is nobody knows. Confidentiality is the people that need to know know. I don't like secrets. I don't deal with secrets. I don't involve myself with secrecy. This isn't the CIA, right? But I do involve myself with confidentiality, which means that there are times I have to make decisions that are unpopular. There are times that I have to do things as a leader that are misunderstood. There are times that people will judge my motives. I don't think it's ever right to judge anybody's motives. But this part of leadership and that people will judge and, they'll make, and, and, and they will misjudge you. And they will, but at the end of the day, if you do the right thing for the right reasons, you will be respected because in the end, it'll all come out. But there will be times where you won't be liked. There will be times you'll be misunderstood. But, you will, but because of moral authority through your time of leading, you'll eventually win the respect of the people. That's what moral authority does. It allows, it's what makes a person respectable. See, this is, let me say something else too. This is something that we miss. We are so infatuated with youth in this country and in our world to stay young, to look young, to try to nip and to tuck everything that we can. And the Bible says that gray hair and that old age is a sign of wisdom. It is something that we should aspire towards, not run from. And we run towards people that look youthful. And then when they don't have the, when their talent takes them where their character can't keep them, we wonder what happened. I'll tell you what happened. There was no character there. There was no moral authority there. And we were looking for something that looked good on the outside. Isn't that what the Bible says? That man looks on the outer appearance, but God looks on the heart. It's character. When people lose their respect for us, and when we lose our respect for other people, we lose our ability to influence, our credibility. That's where politicians are today. People don't respect politicians by and large because they lack moral authority because what they say and how they live is completely in discrepancy with each other. Parents, you can't just say, do as I say. You must say, do as I do. You can't expect your children to have healthy sexual relationship in the confines of marriage if you yourself are not doing that. You cannot expect your kids to do what you're not doing. If you don't want your kids to cuss, then don't let them hear it at home. If you don't want your kids to fight, don't let them see it happening at home. If you want your kids to have a great relationship and a great marriage, then you need to work on yours. Woo, I'm preaching better than you're shouting. I hear you from Appleton. I hear you shouting in Appleton. They're quiet in Germantown today. <laughs> Hypocrites. Haven't you invited somebody to church? And people, and they go, I don't want to go, man, I've been down that road, I've seen people, and they just, they don't live it, and this and that, and I just don't want, and again, I'm talking about perfection, right? We're all forgiven, we're all jacked up, I get all that. But just the willful acting of people trying to masquerade as one thing and being another thing turns people off. Lack of moral authority. So how do you develop moral authority? First of all, you have to have character. Character. Character is the will to do what's right regardless of the cost. Character, when it makes sense and when it doesn't. 
character, when it benefits you and when it sets you back. In ministry, we said there's a difference between a pastor and a hireling. A hireling does what's in his best interest or her best interest. A pastor does what's in the church's best interest. As a shepherd, that's the way the Bible describes the role of the pastor. I'm here to shepherd the sheep. I'm here to shoo away the goats, and I'm here to kill the wolves. If you're a wolf, I'll kill you. You're a goat that just wants to come in and cause problems. I'm going to shoo you away. You're a sheep. I'm going to love you. But here's the bottom line is sheep bite. (laughs) Occupational hazard. (laughs) Character. When you're leading, when you're leading, it's going to cost you something. We want all the benefits. We want all the accolades. We want all of that. But it's going to cost you something. Are you willing to get up early? Are you willing to go to bed late? Are you willing to discipline yourself? Are you willing to sacrifice some things? And you will make sacrifices as a leader that nobody else will know about. Nobody else will understand. That's character. The second uh, uh, development that you have to have with moral authority is sacrifice. Sacrifice. It's what establishes moral authority. It's, it's when people know you're serious is when they see you sacrifice. Moral authority often requires you giving up what you have uh, coming to you for the sake of something that's bigger than you. That's what Nehemiah did. He, he, he was rightfully able to take things, but he chose not to because he knew it would hurt the people. Sacrifice uh, uh, enables people to see our heart. Untested devotion carries very little weight. But tested devotion leaves people with very little that they can say. And time. Time's the last thing that develops moral authority. Nehemiah had invested 12 years to become a person of influence with those individuals. Moral authority is about your reputation. That involves time. And every day matters. The problem with life is that it's so daily. The Bible says it's the little foxes that spoil the vines. It's not the big things that get you. It's the little things. It's the details. So how does this deal with the presidential election? I'm so glad you asked that question. There will always be people who don't believe what you believe. But give them no ground to doubt what you believe and what you claim to believe by your actions. As you look at these two candidates, and there's probably four or six, or I don't know how many will actually be on the ballot, but there's two predominant candidates that are there. Where's the consistency? I know. I'm asking some rhetorical questions. The lesson for us is, is, is uh, are our lives, they always speak louder than our words. So before I judge that candidate, how am I with moral authority? Am I expecting something out of leadership that I'm not willing to do? I'm not talking about job competency here. I'm talking about morality. Morality is the same for all men and all women at all days and all times. God's word is the same today, yesterday, and forever. That has nothing to do with competency unless you are mentally handicapped. It's a completely different conversation. 
But if you are a fully competent individual, as far as your mental faculties are concerned, your emotional wherewithal is concerned, then everybody has the same level of moral authority. Are you wanting these candidates to be something you're not? Because it's a bit unfair and it's a bit disingenuous for you to armchair quarterback when you're 350 pounds sitting in your lazy, ba- lazy boy trying to yell at the, at the screen about how Aaron Rodgers should, should roll out of the pocket and throw on the fly when you can't even hardly get up to get across the room. Don't shout me down when I'm preaching good. Sometimes that's what we have a tendency to do. We have a tendency to judge these people because it's easier to shoot at them at the top than it is to just deal with our own selves. So he who's without sin, let him cast the first stone. Isn't that what Jesus said? And hey, they're going to be voted into an office that's going to be there for four years, maybe eight years max. What you're doing is called to be a follower of Jesus Christ that has eternal consequence. Which is more important? The economy over eight years or eternity? This is not a trick question. See, each candidate brings authority from two different perspectives. Clinton from a public sector. She's been the spouse of a governor of the great state of Arkansas. <laughs> President of the United States, two terms. Senator and Secretary of State. Trump comes from a private sector. Billionaire, businessman, developer, media icon. The question is, who has moral authority to be president of the United States? That's the decision you and I have to make. That's a tough decision. Well, when was the last time you had in the White House someone that you personally knew was a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ? Something, someone that did not use foul language, someone that wasn't crass in private settings, someone that was completely... Uh, above board and carried a Judeo-Christian line when it came to sexuality who wasn't swayed by power by money or influence. It's difficult. So you have to look at the candidate which has a greater amount of consistency. You have to look at the party platform, and I've said that before, but I go back to that. Go back to what the DNC says that they ascribe to. Go back to what the RNC says what they ascribe to. And, and, and let me say this at Life Church, and most churches in America, it is no longer a day where most of the people are affiliated with one particular party. No, there's a lot of divide. And it's easy for you to pick, or for me to pick, or for someone else to pick their kind of pet issue. And say it's all about this, but it's not just all about this. That's an oversimplification to say everything's about one particular issue. Everything's about one particular thing. This is, this is the major issue. This is the major deal. Maybe the major deal for you, but for someone else, it's some, something else. And one particular party may handle this issue, and they may be derelict on another issue, and vice versa. But that's where we have to figure that out, kind of with our own salvation, with fear and trembling, to look at the candidate, to look at, the, at, the, at, at, at each party's platform. Who has moral authority, in your opinion? And then pray. If God's word is true, he hears us when we pray.
and he'll give you wisdom and guidance and direction. So I conclude today with, if Nehemiah were to write a letter to the president, whoever he or she may be, this is what I think it would sound like. Dear Mr. and Mrs. President, one of the many things that we don't envy about your job is a public's fascination with approval ratings. For the next four years, you'll be reminded daily whether or not the citizens of this country approve of your performance. Our hope is that you will set your sights on something far greater than the consequence of our approval. We want you to lead in such a way as to gain and maintain our respect. For that to happen, there must be consistency between what you say, you, what you say and what you do. This alignment will provide you with moral authority necessary to lead and influence those who selected your name in November as well as those who did not. Conduct your private, excuse me, your public life in a way that positions you to confront without reservation those who have abused their power and influence. Conduct your private life in such a way that you can speak with authority to husbands and fathers and wives and mothers about their responsibilities at home. Lead the way in personal generosity. Be the first president of our generation to give away 20% of your annual income. And do it publicly as so, not to, as so to remove any doubt from either party that you're a man or a woman who truly cares about the less fortunate in our nation and in our world. Our country is deeply divided over the economy, health care, national security, many issues. A significant portion of the population will not share your beliefs about how these issues should be addressed. There's nothing you can do about that. But please don't do anything that would lead us to wonder if you really believe what you have said you believe about these issues. The late journalist Lewis Fisher wrote, quote, history is a chronicle of divorces between the creed and the deed, end quote. We pray that will not be the case in your administration. Our hope is that you will be a president whose actions reflect the promises you've made and the values that you claim to embody. And if that is the case, that you will have something far more valuable than our approval. You will have our respect.